Well hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me Chris Stamon Major. In this episode we're continuing John Caldwell's Desperate Voyage and we're on chapter 11. The morning of July 8th I came on deck as usual, threw my eyes into the rigging to check on things then gazed around the horizon at the sea. There was a fresh wind up. Off to starboard was something that made me look again. It was a dense curtain of cloud-like air arm-shaped and bent, reaching from the sea into the clouds and marching over the water. It was a tropic waterspout. How many waterspouts I had seen in the merchant marine. How many times I had leaned on the rail, peering wistfully into the mystery and wishing I was captain. And now I was captain, and I did what I always said I would do if I saw a waterspout from my own boat. I loosed the lashings from the tiller and set Pagan on a track that put her straight for the centre of the waterspout. I've heard a lot about waterspouts during my time on the ships. Some have said that they suck solid water into the clouds and to put a ship through their centre is to take it into a waterfall. Others have said that they have hurricane winds inside and others have said that they mother a great whirlpool at their funnel-like base that can suck a ship under. I've studied dozens of waterspouts from the rails of ships and I have always held that they are harmless. I have argued again and again that they are only large, short-lived whirlwinds, and now I was going to test my arguments. I tossed flotsam and jetsam below, dogged the ports, and slid the companionway hutch shut. Pagan was deep-reefed at the main from high winds of the night before. She crept in upon the towering dark wall of whining air. I lashed the tiller down and raced to the bow for a closer look, to see if I might not be wiser to change my mind about going on. Then suddenly the spout shifted and headed directly for Pagan. I ran to the mast and clung to it. Pagan was swallowed by a cold, wet fog and whirring wind. The decks tilted. A volley of spray swept across the decks. The rigging howled. Suddenly it was dark as night. My hair whipped my eyes. I breathed wet air and the hard, cold wind wet me through. Pagan's gunnels were under and she pitched in the choppy seaway. There was no solid trunk of water being sucked from the sea, no hurricane winds to blow down sails and masts and no whirlpool to gulp me out of sight. Instead, I had sailed into a high dark column from 75 to 100 feet wide, inside of which was a damp circular wind of 30 knots, if it was that strong. As suddenly as I had entered the water spout, I rode out into bright, free air. The high, dark wall of singing wind ran away. For me, another mystery of the sea was solved. I shook out the reef in the mainsail, hoisted all sail, and went below to write my adventure into the log. The next day, I was hove to, riding at sea anchor. I was slumbering peacefully. Pagan was dogged down tight, and she had a terrific roll on, and not a stitch of sail up. Unknown to me, my ten-gallon water beaker, secured into the starboard bilge, had chafed away its lashings. Suddenly it lurched from its position. It bounded to the floor, followed through on top of me, then careened into the port ribbing. Before I could arise, it bounded back and knocked me with it to the floor. Several times it used me battering ram style. It jumped and rolled like something alive. There was no holding it. My weight was as nothing before it. When I rose to scramble away, it caught me at the ankles, toppling me under it, and proceeded to roll over me. I jerked my mattress from the bunk and thrust it between us. With my pillow and blankets and a life preserver, I wedged it in and trapped it between me and the bunk side. 
It's a wonder it hadn't broken some bones or wrenched a few joints, or for that matter, it's a marvel it hadn't done extensive damage to my boat. What had happened to the cats? I didn't know. Presently, I heard their just complaints. They were part of the wedging material, certainly a job their harsh contact hadn't included. At expense to my bruised elbows and knees, I freed them and relashed my cask. But I wasn't the only one aboard to be severely treated by the sea's caprice. One noontime the cats and I were enjoying the midday sun. I was lolling in the cockpit and Flotsam and Jepsum were flouncing about on the cabin top. They were playing cats games on a box I was intending to paint when it dried. The wind from southwest was weak and unsteady, except that every now and then it bent us over gustily. A gust of wind hit us all of a sudden, knocking us out of plumb and pitched the box to the deck, bouncing the cats off the rail into the clutching sea. At first I wanted to pitch in after them and return via the lifeline, but the likelihood of getting both of them, or even one, was remote. I heaved my life jacket near them to mark the spot and hastened to put Pagan about. Every foot I moved from the spot where they fell over was crucial. An object on the surface of the sea is well hidden at 25 yards. Once a seaman fell from a ship I was on, a life ring was thrown to him. He was seen to grab it. By the time the ship turned around, he had disappeared among the crests. Two hours we searched in two lifeboats with powerful binoculars. We never saw the man or the lifeboy again. I had this in mind as I slashed the ropes on the tiller, put her helm hard a weather and threw off the jib sheet. As she jibed around, the sheet ring screeched across the travellers and the whole boat jumped under the blow. I sheeted the jib home, eased off the main and bore down on the spot as I remembered it. I ran for what seemed an unconscionable long time. Seeing nothing, I thought it meet to turn around and zigzag the area. I brought her up into the wind and dropped her over to the starboard tack on a reach. Standing on the cabin, gripping the mast with one hand and the glasses with the other, I scanned every drop of water. At a suitable moment, I came about on the port tack and searched the crest, both up and downwind. Nothing. I was lapsing into despair. Those poor little scamps, floating on an unfriendly, lonesome sea, and if they were seen, who would bother about cats? The searchings I made on the billowy sea had a depth of compassion behind them. I made two more long tacks, covering a wide range, but the hiding sea wouldn't give them up. Hours must have passed. With last looks over the curling waters, I turned to my former course. Suddenly, my life jacket heaved into view, a port. I felt sure I could find the cats now if they hadn't drowned or swum too far from the preserver. When the yellow life jacket came in view again, it was practically dead ahead, but there were no cats near it. I searched the immediate water with my glasses and saw nothing. I scrutinised the top of each sea, jerking the glasses here and there to examine each unfamiliar splash. Only the impersonal sea but no unfortunate kittens struggling on the surface. In a moment, I saw why. As a jacket appeared, there they sat, atop it, blending into its unruly surface and wailing as only lostlings can wail. The looks they gave me as I scooped them in were ample clarification that they were wholeheartedly grateful. Three hours on that pulsating, frothy floor had left them wringing wet and bedraggled, shivering helplessly, this, to them, at least for the moment, was the last straw. I took them below to dry off and sleep safely in warm wool blankets. Soon after this, one of the large variety of seabirds landed aboard Pagan, probably a gannet. He took a position on the cabin and regarded me airily when I came near to be friends. The first time I picked him up, 
He vomited a mass of tiny, partly digested fish on me and jabbed at me with his long, dull bill. Later, we became firm pals, when, after discovering he was ridden with lice, I dusted his feathers with some of the kitten's flea powder, and when I took him out of the heavy weather at night and perched him on the handle of the tool kit in the peaceful cabin, he became an outspoken buddy. Whenever I came near him on deck thereafter, he would squawk raucously, evincing his happiness at being part of the crew, fan the air with his long wings, and nestle contentedly under my petting. Each day he flew off a few hours to feed, but finally gave up the struggle for existence when I included him with flotsam and jetsam each morning in apportioning the fish I caught. But the new passenger hated the kittens. The first time they met was at a fish feed. A knock-down, drag-out brawl was a result, with flotsam and jetsam taking a drubbing. I came out when I heard the scuffling. The kittens were spitting and arching. The seabird was attacking them in turn, flailing them with his wings and pecking circles around them. Thereafter, I had to keep them separated. I named him Gorky, because he was a living monument to the word. I got the idea when he toppled off the boom onto the cabin and bounced over the side when I playfully sneezed in his face. So Gorky took his place as a boarder on the house, along with the cats and my school of dolphin. The leader of the dolphin, a battle-scarred old veteran of thousands of successful contests with lesser and greater fry than he, I named Old Death. He didn't forage out ahead as the others did. He stayed in close, lazing under the shadow of the hull, darting out with murderous speed on unsuspecting victims, making his kills within a boat length of the keel. One morning, I saw an unbelievable thing aboard Pagan. I had been splicing a jib sheet fairly at the fish plates. Upon finishing it, I started below, and there, beside my bunk, under the chart rack, in startled quiet, was a large grey rat. He was longer than either of the cats. His eyes, like tiny black agates, were fixed on me. His whiskers wig-wagged nervously. Beside him, a thick, hairless tail formed a thin grey wake, showing where he had turned as I startled him. He made a motion to go, and I grabbed and tossed the first thing my blind hand touched, my alarm clock. Glass and spare parts flew around the tiny cabin. I was sorry I had startled and threatened the poor devil. Live and let live, I thought. I figured he would be a welcome part of the crew, along with Flotsam and Jetsam and Gorky. Out here on the high seas in a tiny bobbing world, what mattered it? Who was aboard? It was an amazing thing, this rat aboard, when I sat down to think about it. How and when had he come aboard? How in all these weeks in so small a space had we avoided each other? Not a sign of him had I seen. What about the kittens? Why hadn't they detected him? Where had he gotten his food and his water? I jerked bolt upright at the thought of the latter. Had he gnawed into my water beakers? I checked instantly each of my oaken casks, turning them around, searching their whole area. No sign of tampering. I searched into my food stores beneath the cabin bunks in the lockers and found droppings he had left behind, which I hadn't seen before. There was no possibility of his eating into the tins or the jars or the jugs. Then as I crawled under the forepeak and rummaged in the starboard bunk, I found where all these weeks he had secreted himself. In Panama, I had stored a few items in a lemon crate, tacked in over with canvas and painted the covering. It was into this he had gnawed in search of the cheese, salt pork and prunes inside. As to his source of water, I can only assume he licked up my spillings during mealtime or he licked up the overspillings from the milk cans. One thing I quickly learned, the kittens knew of his presence. 
When I brought them down, they went directly into the forepeak to stand a patient vigil at the small opening they couldn't get into. In the weeks since leaving the Perlas, I had been too busy working my boat to see the grim drama below decks. Storway, so far as I can conjecture, must have come aboard when I ran aground at San Jose. Just possibly, he had crept from the jungle into my supplies on the beach and had somehow become trapped in the gear as I reloaded it. Judging from what is told of the sea from old, of rats not boarding an unsound ship, I was flattered by the compliment of his presence. So, Stowaway, as I named him, became a part of the cruise, another mouth to feed in my little Pacific household. Each night I placed a morsel of food and a thimbleful of water at the base of the mast for Stowaway. I wanted him to be fed and watered so that he wouldn't be up to such rats' pranks as gnawing into my water beakers. In my spare time, I sawed up and hammered together a small shelter, somewhat like a birdhouse. I lashed it to the mast at the floor, with the door directed forward, so that our diffident passenger could come and go in secret. Though he rarely made a public appearance, he never failed to draw his rations. He evidently felt at one with his abode because several times I caught the cat snooping around it. They had that eager look which usually possessed them when I flashed a fish under their noses. They had many a struggle at its front door, a small round hole. It was easily large enough for stowaway, but Flotsam and Jetsam could only get their eyes to it. What a tantalising place for them that box became. I can still see them there, each with a fierce paw clawing through the opening, labouring like tiny lions and voicing mightily their ego and thwarted desire. Since Flotsam and Jetsam were confirmed seamen and adapted to a regimen of fresh fish, I was surprised they would concern themselves over a mere rodent. But, despite the salt in their blood, they stalked stowaway in a fashion to do a landlubber justice. And so life went. A succession of simple events to detract from the bane of torturous miles. The plainest things were of the greatest interest. Many have asked me if I was bored out there in a wooden world whose length was that of most kitchens and the width of most bathrooms. Life is never boring to me, never was, no matter where I have been. My early life was such that I was forced upon myself when I wasn't working. I learned early to fill those hours with my own diversion. Aboard Pagan, I found plenty to do, even at the most static times. My main preoccupation, aside from working my boat, which took overwhelmingly of my time, was with reading. I had a varied library aboard, everything from whodunits to Darwin, and I read all. Now a mystery, now a novel, now politics, now philosophy, and now poetry. The ones I liked were Dumas-Passant's short stories, Carrie McWilliams' Brothers Under the Skin, Harold Lasky's Reflections on the Revolution of Our Time, and Will Durant's The Mansions of Philosophy. Another thing I did, I spent time thinking. Often I sat for hours gazing out across the water to the sea rim, chewing mentally at whatever I wished to ease my mind. Often my thoughts turned on my past life and I relived completely all that had gone before. The oldest of five sons and a daughter, the loss of my father at 15 during the Depression, Four years of work helping my mother support the family, factories, mills and sweatshops for a boy who wanted to go to school. Remarriage of my mother to a kindly stepfather, for me freedom from the yoke of a large family. All I earned, my own now, but I didn't want to earn, I wanted to learn, to rise above the factory. So off I went, broke, with a ninth grade education to college. I had no alternative. Who, at 20, after working four years in the open shops of Los Angeles South End, 
wants to go back to high school with the kids. Santa Barbara State College. I begged my way in and they let me stay. I borrowed money from the Dean of Men, a swell guy. I worked my way through, played football, class prexy in my sophomore year. What should have been my junior year was spent on merchant ships. I wanted to fly a bomber, but I had a hole in my eardrum from childhood TB, so I was rated 4F in the draft. No service would have me but the Merchant Marine. Two years in the Merchant Marine, twice around the world, from Reykjavik to Cape Horn, a year in the Royal Australian Air Force, marriage to a blue-eyed Aussie girl, the greatest event in my life. Again in the Merchant Marine, this time more than a year. The war over, Mary and I caught in the shuffle, separated by circumstances. And now, lobbing on a splinter of wood, uncertainly across the Pacific. Some of the time I worked ship, depending, of course, on the weather. Each morning I trolled for fish. I navigated. If the cats were in a playful mood, we sported about the decks a while, or I had a long talk and a genial boxing match with Gorky. Many hours I watched old Death and his boys slipping through the sea, attacking the flying fish. A few hours a day, I read. Of principal importance was a letter I was writing Mary, to be mailed at Seymour Island. I added a few lines each day to it. It grew as my dreams and desires to be with her grew. At times, Mary seemed an unconquerable distance away. Soon it would be two months since I sailed from Panama. At such a rate, it would take a year to get to Australia. According to my original timetable, I should have been at least halfway across the Pacific. I would have to hurry now to outrun the hurricane season. Each day, the prospect of constant trade winds pushing from behind became a brighter encouragement. Each day I found myself a little nearer them. Each day I sloughed off a few dragging miles. With the noon sight of July 15th, I pinpointed myself at 1 degree south latitude and 85 degrees west longitude, roughly 300 miles from the Galapagos. I hauled around to a course slightly south of west. From now on, each day's sailing counted for the maximum. At last, I was making a steady course of west. Pagan became a happy boat. The logbook, nearly two-thirds filled, had its first optimistic entry. 12.15pm. Turned finally west. I can smell the southeast trades. The cold Humboldt current, diverted westward by Cape Parinha on the South American western bulge, was now helping me along. The wind had shifted into the south, a fairer face was on the sea, and a set of comfortable circumstances set in that were almost mystic in their wondrousness. After a month of beating back and forth to a destination that lay dead to windward, such sailing as this smacked of peculiarity. But I was making time. I was killing distance. It was wonderful. 300 miles on the bow lay the Galapagos, athwart the equator. For the first time, I eased sheets a bit, watched the lifeline straighten out astern in the frothy wake, and sailed as one reads it is done in books and yachting magazines. For the next few days, I felt not a squall, not a drop of rain, not a disordered cloud. It was so unearthly serene that the cats and I bedded down under the stars in the cockpit. Even lazy old Gorky roosted out with us. He had his special position on the lashed tiller, and we rode so smoothly over a halcyon sea that not even he could fall off a perch. We gave stowaway the cabin to himself. In the fleet time before sighting my first land, I hastened to finish the long letter I was writing to Mary. By this time it had grown to 62 pages on both sides. In it was every warm thought a young man could crowd who was in process of transit to his love, as I was. It took every bit of 62 pages to say what I felt. I planned to mail it at Seymour Island, 
a fist-like outjutting on the north end of Indefatigable, where an army weather station was located. I intended to stop only a day or two, long enough to check over the gear and have a night or two of soft sleep, then push off. The last 300 miles to the Enchanted Isles I reeled off in less than four days. On the forenoon of July 19th, Chatham Island reared herself above the sea as a dark shadow, one point on the port bow. The first landfall, the first leg of the trip over, a thousand miles of sea behind me, 7,500 miles yet to go. Chapter 12. Unenchanted Isles. On a sunny afternoon, I stood atop the deck house, leaning against the mast and peering at the northern tip of Chatham Island on the eastern rim of the Galapagos Group. On Chatham lies Rack Bay, the anchorage of the seat of the government. Ecuador owns the archipelago, the Enchanted Isles as they are known, but I wasn't making official calls. My desire originally had been to pull straight for Seymour and at the army base give Pagan the once-over post-haste, store a few fresh supplies and pass on my way. But the calms, the storms, the adverse currents, the loss of my engine had thrown my timetable off and now arriving in the Galapagos after July 1st, there was no army base to go to. According to my information, it was to be moved out by July 1st. However, I could see no loss in going to the site on the off chance that the move had not yet been made. The wind was holding at south, but it had toned in strength. My interest was taken mainly with asserting my set to northward by the strong current sweeping up from the southward. I watched the north tip of the island and saw it, as I suspected, shifting to south of me. I shifted the angle of rudder, turning the bow to southward, and set myself for a broad reach that would stem me into sight of Seymour late at night and assure me of an early morning arrival. I passed Chatham before dusk. I noticed that my driftage to northward had been considerable despite course corrections. I reset the straining tiller and went below to read. I had a few pages to go with the paradise of the divine comedy, so I wandered a few hours among pleasant words, peering out occasionally into the black. At nine, I ended the mystic tale and went on deck to ponder its soul-stirring aspects. I found that the wind had petered out and Pagan was jolting in a confused sea. The sails were slatting and the running gear was banging as the disjointed rollers jostled her. Bolts and shackles, a calm. All through the night, the flat air held and the sea slapped and smacked along the bilges. I had no idea with what speed I was drifting north. Some places on the chart showed two knots, others three. There was no certainty. The chart was an issue of the British Admiralty of excellent artisanship, but it was old. The only thing available on the Galapagos... I conjectured all the night on what my position was, on how long I had been drifting. North of my track somewhere were the three small islands of Tower, Marchinan and Pinta. According to the chart they were barren, waterless, seared lava. I cupped my hands to my ears, listening for the pounding of seas on rock face. Deep in the night the sky clouded over and there was no more stellar reflections in the black water. Darkness closed down over me like a fog and I began listening more intently. Another hour dragged past. Several times I thought I heard something. Finally, I shipped Pagan's ungainly oars, fitted them into their rowlocks on the gunwale, and seated myself in the cockpit, and waited. Pagan, because of her shallow draught and low tonnage, was movable under oars. In fact, to a degree she was manoeuvrable. An eerie silence pervaded everything. Not a whisper escaped that massive pond of reflecting water. 
I placed the cats beside me in their abandoned ship box, which I had built after Malpelo. It floated. In it were provisions to do them till they could reach land. We listened with ears strained to the north. Much later, a puff of wind stirred out of the southwest for a few unsteady minutes. It fell to a void before I could trim the sails. Left again alone with my imagination and the dark night, I fell into a series of wild speculations. That wind from the southwest, what did it mean? Where had the wind sat when I was reading? From the southwest? I couldn't remember having looked at the compass once during the time of reading. The lethargy of the past three days had led me to trust the wind in the south. Had it shifted? Had I actually been sailing northwest when I had thought I was sailing west? I sat another hour, quieter than I had sat for days. Hardly an hour later, I was startled awake by the unmistakable thunder of seas on a closed shore. I made the sound dead to the west of north, about two miles off as I could reckon. It was the din of water breaking against solid cliffs. I bent to the ungainly oars and brought Pagan's bow off to the east and laboured her into the black night. In a short while, the roar had grown considerably. The air was dead. Pagan's sails slatted from side to side on each light swell, popping with a maddening persistence. Blocks rattled. Sheets dragged in the water and tossed water indiscriminately across the decks. I was thinking of the day at Malpelo and wishing I had a fine gale on now. The first streaks of the new day were overdue, so I leaned more heavily on the oars. Hard by to starboard, a ragged, towering shadow was making up. At its base, a grey surf was surging to and fro like heartbeats. I could faintly observe a clear alley of escape in the weakening dark, around a lump in a bulge on the eastern coast. I pulled to clear the stomach of rock at daylight, and I sat, fascinated, as barely two boat lengths away, the escarpment, breasting the seas rolling out of the windy south, moved away. Fore and aft, the full length of the island, great beetling cliffs underwashed by the bristling sea, glowered on me. My chart showed that it was Marchina Island, cliff-bound and unreceptive. I was nudging along with the current. So far as I could tell, all ahead was clear. A little to the north was Pinter, as yet not in view, small and easily avoided. According to the chart, I had only to drift around the northern tip and away to wind. Overhead, the sky had become a grisly curtain. The sea was as smooth as a dance floor. With daylight, I expected wind, but as late as when the first sun showed, I was still in a void. Shortly afterward, I drifted off the low end of Marchina, only to find Pinter, 12 miles distant, lying more or less in my track. The peculiar thing was that I couldn't decide whether she was astride my path or not. One moment it appeared so, and the next it was questionable. The bowsprit, along which I was attempting to sight the island, was circling like a nervous finger. I presently concluded that whether Pinter was in my line of drift or not, I should start rowing. The current was shifting me toward the little isle at two knots or better. Her southern end was an active volcano at the water's edge. It rose a few hundred feet, and from its blunt summit a broad column of thin smoke hung in the dour air. Its base lay in the sea, and I somehow felt that the water would be hot there. Beside it lay a shingled beach which ran onto a parched hill topped by another crater. The land everywhere had a naked, withered look, and I thought of the word dry as I looked up the hostile slopes. Here and there was a cactus-like growth, seared grey-brown bushes and stumpy, hungry-looking trees, totally uninviting. I started the rowing when I was yet a long way off, but soon wished I had started earlier. 
I was rowing to the west because I felt it would succeed more easily than fighting the current east. There was easily eight miles of rowing to do, so I spent the first hours at regulated long stroking. At first I judged that I would easily clear the island and doubtless lost much valuable time when I relaxed to half stroke. As I drifted closer, I saw a pack of seals sporting in the water. When they saw me, they stopped with eyes showing above the water, staring from their shiny heads, looking first like boulders, then like apparitions. One, not suspecting my dire straits, came up to offer friendship. He swam in unusually close, often ducking under the oars. I'm sure he would have become great pals if I hadn't been so frantically at work. I would have loved to catch him a fish and feed him by hand, and I'm sure he was all for it. Suddenly, I found that I was closing at a quicker rate, an alarming rate. I was midway across the island and no longer in the lee of Marchina. The full current had gripped me and was thrusting me as if I were in a mill race. Though I was clear of the volcano, I could feel its hot breath and sense its hostility. I rode the faster, not looking up till my arms cramped. I looked up to gauge my progress and what I saw actually refreshed me with the terror it held. I was less than a hundred yards offshore and I was easily several hundred yards to the point of the projecting land up the coast. An impossible contest. I stroked with such wild haste that, dipping short, I missed the water altogether and flopped heels skyward onto the hatchway step. The oars went flying beamward, out of reach. I thought of plunging in to retrieve them, but on hearing the lapping of water licking over rocks, I knew it would be in vain. There were still three oars in the cabin, my first thought was to break them out. Before going down, I took a look and prospects looked so grim, I didn't bother to go below. Ordinarily, I'm not one to give up, but what I saw made me quit thinking of trying to save my boat. I was 75 yards from the pockmarked wall of lava and hundreds of yards from the point. There was nothing to anchor on, nothing I could do. I gave up. I had to save myself. I strained my faculties for the next thing to do, the cats. They were in their floating box. I tossed them into the rubber raft and pushed it off the rail. I made ready to cast it adrift and climb in. Land was less than a hundred feet away. The sea was washing against it with subdued thuds, but with force nevertheless. I stared quickly about for the last thing to do. I thought of water, food, clothes, but I also thought of the fight back up current with small oars to the shingled beach and the need for an immediate start. Then, for some unknown reason, but most likely because I was grasping for last threads, I raced to the bow and plopped my rustic anchor into the placid water. Bubbles trailed it where it plunged. It ran to its chain's end. The chain hung up and down in water empty of a chance ledge. There was nothing for the anchor to snag against. I turned to run to my raft to make a way while there was still time. Then a darkening line showed on the water, ruffling it and closing in on the port beam. I hardly had time to grab the tiller before a squall raced aboard Pagan, enclosing her sails in shrieking arms, pressing them flat, whipping them with a faint rain. Pagan heeled sharply to the flurry. I whooped and hollered exultantly as she worked off the now roaring shore and bit into sea room. In a scant twenty minutes, well clear of the scorched land, I rounded up to the wind and dropped the mainsail. Before tying in a reef, I pulled the pneumatic raft to the counter and handed out my despondent cats. They strode stiffly below, disclaiming for the moment the sea and its abruptnesses. I massaged them briskly in a fuzzy towel and folded them into an army blanket. To smooth their outraged humours, I took my pole to the deck and cast a singing, well-baited line off the quarter. 
Gorky returned to the cabin top after having deserted us in our moment of peril. I shoved him below, out of the weather. I made the course southwesterly to clear the threat of other northerly island groups, and I forgot about Seymour since it was back to southeastern, pointed for Albemarle, the largest and westernmost island in the group. It was my intention to make for the leeward side of the great sprawling island to rest and collect myself, but mostly to sink into restful sleep for the night. The wind was stout and Pagan stemmed the tide ideally, for now we were heading south, fighting the current. At dusk I noticed a grey wash of sea along an extended ledge off the north of Abermal. It jutted out a good mile. There is nothing more frightful to a seaman than shallow reefs kicking up a growling surf. Halfway along the ledge I could make out the cold-looking bones of what looked to be two wrecked vessels in a foot or two of water they sat, lonely and stark, awash and helpless. They were evidently incautious fishermen who had rounded the point too sharply or had been swept there by the current, or by one of the frequent tidal waves native to the Galapagos. I gave the whole cape healthy clearance. The sight of the tortured hulks made me jittery. I decided not to pull into the lee of the cliffs and anchor, instead to shape a course down the northwestern shore, tack around the western point, and beat into Tagus Cove, probably on the morrow. By now Pagan was much fouled on the bottom with shellfish, I was wishing I had some high tides and sandy beaches as in the Perlas. I needed to careen her a tide or so to scrape her and paint her. I thought of returning round to Seymour where the army might be, but I chased the thought away because of the wrecks on the point. Two, I was afraid some unavoidable delay might crop up which would jeopardise the safety of my trip. Seymour wasn't a necessity, so I decided against going there. Floriana Island was about a 100 miles distant, I thought seriously of going there to do the hull work. The chart accredited her with a beach and a sandy shore. Also, there is a post box there. In that way, I could kill two birds with one stone, by doing the hull and mailing the ponderous letter I had written to Mary. Besides, doing the work alone, I could be done all the quicker and be sooner on my way. Post Office Bay at Floriana, I had learned in Panama, is an ancient mailing station. It was created by whaling ships of old, outward bound to their hunting waters. In passing, they dropped off letters to folks at home, at the same time procuring fresh water and fruits and vegetables, as well as the great land tortoises, Galapagos, for fresh meat. If another ship happened in on the way home, she obligingly picked up and delivered the mail found staked on the beach in an old box. Today a barrel stands there. Occasionally, even now, a northeastern bound fisherman, or in fact anyone clearing the island for the mainland, cleans it out and deposits the load in a post office in Panama or San Diego. Amazingly, enough letters posted there, whether stamped or not, have been known to arrive as addressed, in time. After a night of intermittent naps and steering mostly by guess, I wound up at daybreak negotiating the strait between Narborough Island and Tagus Cove. I passed into the embayment and rounded up for the anchorage. An hour later, I went below for a nap. I slept the day out and all that night. Well, that's the end of this episode of Rare Nautical Reads. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any aspirations to get out on the water yourself, find out what it's like to get beyond the horizon, out of sight of land, go over to spartanoceanracing.com. That's the company that I started seven years ago, which gives sailors of all ages, all backgrounds, and all skill levels 
the opportunity to get onto 60 and 80 foot boats with professional crew and find out how to safely and effectively take on a long distance offshore passage. If you can't get out on the water, you can go over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner and there you'll find all the podcasts, you'll find blogs, you'll find gear reviews and also the Spartan online seamanship training syllabus, which we've been working on now for over a year. This means every month we put out a 45 minute to one hour video, very nitty gritty, very in detail, looking at exactly how you complete tasks on the boat, how systems work, how to navigate electronic gear, dealing with problems, fixing things, the engine, it's all in there. Um, the last, I guess, is YouTube. If you go over to YouTube forward slash The Mariner, also lots of stuff going on there and lots more of the video blogs there when we're out at sea moving around in these boats and you can see what we're up to. So don't let it just be in the stories. Connect with us on social media, connect with us um, on the water and make it a reality for yourself. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, I hope you're safe and sound and look forward to sailing with you soon. Cheers. Cheers.